This one is uh, about Peter and Cornelius. Uh, so this is kind of a two-parter because the whole chapter is dedicated to these two. Uh, and, and in this time, uh, in this moment, they're going to meet each other. Uh, but the way they meet each other is quite interesting and fascinating, what God does to work in them. So today we look at this uh, first official moment that the Gentiles are welcomed into as God's people. We've seen moments where uh, other Gentiles, as it were, have been individually brought in. Uh, but um, from what we understand, they would have been circumcised. And this is the point where this stops happening. Gentiles are all welcome into the kingdom of God. And Cornelius is that kind of trigger point. It's the moment where, uh, where Gentiles are officially welcomed uh, into the salvation of Jesus. And we saw, we saw sort of people like the eunuch being saved and all those uh, good things. Um, but this will signify that Gentiles will be accepted uh, without the need to become full converts to Judaism as well. So what I think in particular we'll find is what God will do is, is remove the barrier between the clean and unclean, the Jews and the Gentiles, as it were. They were Gentiles were considered unclean uh, and Jews clean. Um, but I think the main principle we need to take away from this act of removing the barrier between what was deemed clean and unclean was to show that God was always going to call all people and give all people opportunity to separate themselves from the impurities of the world. The reminder that Acts 10, I think, will give us is actually found in in another verse, which kind of, I think, is the the main drive in this. But it's found in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9, 9 to 10, I've got there, yeah, 9 to 10. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is kind of, this is what, what Peter talks about uh, in kind of related to this moment, actually, where there's a welcoming now of once you were not God's people, we were not God's people, and now we are. We're welcomed into the, the, the family of God. And so I want us to uh, firstly be reminded of the calling out of darkness that was done by God through the blood of Jesus, absolutely paramount that we talk about that. Just so today we can be called a chosen race and part of a royal priesthood. Once we're not a people, now we are. It's amazing. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that we are part of his family. Uh, So it's so easy to forget when you become a Christian that these are the basics are so... uh, Sometimes we just lose focus of the basics of what's been done. And I say basics, the, the power of what's been done is just something we cannot fathom. Uh, the, the, Jesus giving his life on the cross for those that didn't deserve it is just something that we will struggle to fathom this side uh, of our lives. But in our verses in Acts 10 today, we'll see the beginning of this amazing truth being played out uh, through Cornelius and Peter. So let's get into our verses, Acts 10 verses 1 to 23, uh, and it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. 
Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had, uh, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything he, that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him in the second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out that where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. I think that's all of it. Yeah. I think I've got a different version on my notes, but anyway, okay. So, sorry. Oh, okay, that's a different translation maybe. Okay, yes. Uh, there's something coming up which is, is also going to just not be in your Bibles, by the way, uh, and I'll, I'll explain why that is as well, <laughs> just to confuse you even more. Um, but here we are. So what do we find? We find that Cornelius, um, we find ourselves with Cornelius as we hear from Peter, So uh, and Luke's writing about what is going on. Uh, Cornelius is a centurion, uh, was one of 60 officers in a Roman legion, each of whom commanded 100 men. Uh, Cornelius was a uh, Roman centurion at Caesarea, would have been under Pontius Pilate uh, until AD 36, and he was commander of approximately, uh, as I said, 100 men. Um, but where we are um, from a place point of view, hopefully I've pointed that out well enough that you can see, uh, Red Caesarea uh, is, is where uh, Cornelius is, and Jaffa, or Joppa, it's called Jaffa now, but Joppa um, is, is where Peter is. And so you can see quite a distance to travel. Apparently today that would be roughly about an hour and 20 minutes or something by car, and an average speed of something. I'm not good at maths. Um, but Caesarea was a, 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 this sort of big, magnificent city, Roman city, built about 10 years before the birth of Christ by Herod. Um, the great, uh, in honor of uh, the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. And it was situated, as you can't really tell there, but uh, 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it's around 40 miles from Caesarea. Uh, so, yeah, it's a fair old uh, walk um, in those times as well. So that's kind of where we are in place, and a bit about Cornelius there. Cornelius himself is 
is mentioned only in uh, Acts 10, but he is important because he was the first known Gentile to be saved. Um, Philip, we, as I mentioned, had uh, gone earlier to the Samaritans um, and to the converted um, eunuch from Ethiopia. But both of these, as we understand, would have undergone circumcision at this point because uh, they would have been following the law. So they wouldn't have been a major offense to the Jews. Uh, the Jews could, according to law, fellowship with such men. So uh, they would have been this point where they still would have had to be circumcised, follow the law. Now we're getting to the point where this is not going to be the case. And so we would find this uh, in Cornelius. He would be the first person to not be uh, converted to Judaism. Uh, but he was a God-fearer. He, he was stopped, stopped short of being uh, in, in Judaism just because of not being able to follow law or not following the law. Um, so actually, he was everything up to that point. He was God-fearing. He was absolutely, uh, he loved God. Um, he was obviously a man that was charitable, uh, gave alms, it says in one translation, uh, and that makes him a very charitable man. Pray to God all the time. A great example uh, of someone just wanting to seek God's heart, which we'll get into as well. Um, but Cornelius had this sort of religious orientation. He was a devout man. He had this high concept. And there's two terms here, um, just, from, just from understanding where he's come from. Um, he's, his ancestors would have been uh, polytheists, so people that believe or worship in multiple gods. Uh, he is kind of moved to monotheistic. monotheistic which is uh, one God. So you can, his background is that they worship lots of gods. He's now come to acknowledge that there is one God, uh, which is rare, uh, absolutely rare, certainly from his ancestry. Uh, but Cornelius, he worshipped well, lived up to the light he had from God in common grace. He feared God, deep respect and awe, and worshipped God. Great guy. He carried his religion out in a practical way, giving charity, Highly respected by the Jews, it says as well. So he's charitable and very giving. Admirable person. Even from the outside, we would see that he's a very admirable person. But one thing we need to be clear, he was not regenerated. He was not saved. It's very, it's very easy to be confused by seeing this and understand that he is just a man who's, you know, saved, who is saved because he is following God, he's doing all the right things, as it were. Not, not in a religious or in necessarily religious or traditional way, but he is actually doing it because he loves the Lord. But it, we need to know that he is not saved. He was lacking true salvation, not a Christian man. And it should be clear that however great and good his praying and charity is, it's not that which convinces God to allow people, to allow us to become part of God's people. It's not that he was good at doing those things. It's not that he displayed great generosity that convinced God to necessarily use him. It does say that God was remembered or reminded by what he had done. But we need to know that God is not changing anything. He is carrying out his plan. Cornelius is the way in which he is going to carry out the plan. Cornelius is still a creation or a creature of God. He didn't, uh, did not have special grace from Christ. Uh, he was a God-fearing man, good by human standards. 
he fell short of God's standard and needed a savior. That is what we acknowledge today as Christians is that we fall short of God's standard equally, even as people profess God, uh, they need to be saved by Jesus. That is to trust and believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the savior, he is Lord. But his actions did display a desire of seeking after the one true God. What we'll find not only for Cornelius, but for all Gentiles is that God lives up to the promise. And we'll see this in Matthew 5, uh, verse 6, and Jeremiah 29, verse 13. Uh, and it says this in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That sense that he's really going after God. I want what God has. I, want, I, want to, I believe in him. I trust him. I love him. I want to do what is right by God. Jeremiah, the same again, 29 verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Just a quick insight into this maybe that helps us today. I think if people search genuinely for truth, I believe they will find Jesus. If they search genuinely that they want to find God, not just the God of their own making, I'm, I'm talking about the biblical God, the Christian God, they will find Jesus. And I think when people search for genuine truth about life and they do that to the God of the Bible, I believe that God takes note of this hungry heart, a searching soul that wants to believe and receive Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. See, what happens to us as we move from searching to believing, and I think we've, we've lost, I think we've lost some of this today, but I think what's meant to happen, what should happen, when we move from searching to believing is that when we really search in the right place and find it, we stop searching. I think so much of our world, and especially it's infiltrated churches very much, is there's almost an unhealthy desire that's, that's been growing to want something more, more than or more from Jesus than that which we've already received. I think there's always people looking for, they've had the, the moment with Jesus where they, they've had the revelation, and because it's taken as just one particular experience, they look for another and another and another and another. When you find Jesus, because we understand that God found us first, but when we see him, there shouldn't be a need to search for anything more. It should just stop. We say Jesus is enough. This is what it means to say Jesus is enough. This is what it means to believe Jesus is enough. I don't need the other things. I don't need to find another experience to match when I came to Jesus because Jesus is more than those other things. I think the world tries to teach us an insatiable desire to keep wanting more, wanting something else because we're done with the last thing. Remember when we did that? I want that again. I want this again. I want this again. I want to do this. I want more of this, more of this. I worry that if we go down this road that we're going to, uh, and I'm, I'm talking to all of us here, including myself, but churches as well, we go down this road of continually just looking for the next thing, we're going to miss Jesus. We're going to lose sight of why we became a Christian in the first place. We're going to lose sight of the gospel 
And what's going to be affected by that is the church. The church is going to suffer because of that. Jesus needs to be enough. So when a relationship with Jesus is found, there should be no further desire in us to seek something else or other. For when we seek, we find. And I'm not condemning people that are, are finding trouble with that, that are finding to find more and more and maybe something else. That's why the church is here. The church is here to help people with that, to help people to not want to chase after the winds and changes of the world. The church is here to help people find Jesus, even though the paradox of that is that Jesus found us first. But I think this principle can be found in the way that God tells Cornelius to meet Peter. God tells Cornelius that he must call Peter to come to him. Verse 5 says this, Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. Uh, that is, um, just on a quick note on that, that is, um, it's his, it says his surname is Peter. So in the original text, it says Simon whose surname is Peter. So his last name, Simon Peter. Um, which, which is really interesting because we just say Simon who is called Peter. They called him Peter, but according to original text, it uses a surname. His surname is Peter. Just a little fact that you might be not interested in whatsoever, but I thought I'd share that with you because I was amazed just reading that, thinking that's not what that says in the text. And Anyway, it doesn't matter hugely, but it's just an interesting fact, right, that Simon who is surname is Peter. Um, just thought that was quite interesting. Sometimes you find these things, these little facts in the Bible and in the original text, and you just think, how did they come to write it in this way and translate it this way? It's very strange. We'll come to something like that in a minute anyway. <laughs> but we um, hear Cornelius in this verse, as we see here, um, has to send men to bring back Peter. And God, I think, has shown that Cornelius has found what he's been searching for. But it is because of him... Um, not because of him or Peter, but because of God. I believe it brings about a similar, more important principle that John states here. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved. Whilst Cornelius was searching, God had already called him first. God loved us before we were capable of loving him. In the same way, Cornelius searching is in vain unless unless God made that searching fruitful to begin with. God made himself known first. So with God making himself known, and Cornelius searching in the right place, we've got a perfect match, right? So then surely the question is, why doesn't the angel just tell Cornelius about salvation through Jesus? Why are we going through this? This seems a long and painful process to have to send people and then go and get Peter and then bring Peter back 40 miles away, 40 miles, 80 miles for the men he sent, by the way. Why, Why doesn't the angel just tell Cornelius about salvation? Because the power of the gospel is to expose people to the truth of our sinful, corrupt nature. And when we're exposed to that, we can be saved into Christ. Angels are not 
and have not experienced a fallen nature. So they don't understand the salvation bit. They don't know why there's, or they don't really, they don't need to know why there's a salvation because they're with God. They under, they're in with God all the time. Angels do not understand a fallen nature that they need to be redeemed from because they don't have it. They have no means to understand the true extent of going from one sorry, sinful state to new living, new life state in Christ. Angels serve at the behest of God. They serve at his will and always have done. They know no different. So it's not just God involving people just for the, the sake of just giving us something to do. But it's all the more glor- to glorify the power of the gospel in beings that did not deserve it, but are welcomed to it. An angel has no concept of a fallen to redeemed state. So there's your answer. That's why this all has to happen. Sometimes there's really practical answers to these things. Sometimes there's things we say, I just don't know why God did that. We know why God did this, because God is glorified in redeemed people. When, when people are redeemed, acknowledge their sinful state, God is glorified. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Angels can't do that. Angels don't need to and have no capacity to yearn for hope in Jesus. They are with God. They're in heaven. They're serving at the best of our Lord and Savior. We are in a hopeless world. But Jesus, who is the hope, gives us hope for that which is greater than we can ever imagine. No angel could convey or experience such a power that brings people from death into life and lies into truth. So let's look at this power. Let's look at the vision that Peter receives. Peter is in Joppa near modern-day Tel Aviv, praying on the roof of a tanner named Simon around noon. The houses in Palestine uh, were often small and crowded, and one of the favorite places to pray uh, was on a flat rooftop of homes where there was a, a time just to find a peace and quiet for, for this prayer and meditation, as it were. And it says, as he was praying, he grew hungry and went into a trance. Difference between a two, a trance and a dream, just to kind of give you an idea of what that means. A trance happens when someone is awake and the dream happens when a person obviously is asleep. But in Peter's vision, he will see a sheet drop down from heaven, filled with animals, some that are allowed to be consumed by the Mosaic law and some that aren't. One of the most strangest moments in, this, in these verses is that it's a very clear direction from God uh, to Cornelius. But to Peter, it's time to go all out, proper four corners, sheets falling down. What does that mean? What's he talking about? Why, is, why can't he just be direct? There's a reason for this. It says in verse 11 that we're looking at now, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. He saw a vision of a vessel. I don't mean a UFO. 
with that. And that's all been across the news about the US and the UFOs. I'm not talking about UFO, okay? Just in case people start thinking I'm trying to get that in there. I'm not. But he saw a vision of a, of a vessel descending from heaven. And the sheet knit at the four corners means the four corners of the earth. We use that in the sayings, don't we? We use it as, as a, we sometimes say that the four corners of the earth. And this indicates a universal message. What God is doing in showing Peter is showing this is a message for the entire world. So this is why we understand that this is the moment where Gentiles are welcomed into the kingdom because this vision that Peter has is to, is to try to show him that it's for everyone, no longer just for Jews, practicing Jews, but now for the whole world. The four means universe, spiritually, or of all people. And it then goes on to say, all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles, birds, and God told him, get up, Peter, uh, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, surely not, Lord, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, I was looking, when I was studying these uh, verses, there's, there's a lot, this is used quite a lot for social commentary. Uh, talk about uh, things like maybe even racism, um, prejudice, and all sorts of things like that. There, there is a sense a little bit in here that Peter's got some prejudice. Clearly, he's been brought up um, in this way. So he, he doesn't, what I'm about to tell you is that he's used to the Jewish way of doing things. He's used to the Mosaic law. So he's about to be told that no longer applies anymore. We don't have that. God's saying that's not going to apply to you anymore. So there is something in it, but this is not, the Bible is never about a social commentary. It's about saving lives of people who are destined for hell. That, that's what the message is. That's what we need to get back to. It's not to shoehorn, crowbar the message into some socially uh, relevant message today. That's not how it works. God might do that, and he might do that in his grace, and he might talk to people around in different churches and say, I need you to talk about injustice, racial, prejudice, whatever. But we need to stick with the Bible. We need to stick with what this is God is actually showing us. So firstly, God is showing him all the animals that are likely shown in Leviticus 11 and explains the laws around clean and unclean animals uh, that they can eat and sacrifice. Just to give you an example, clean animals are land animals that chew the cud and have a divided hoof. Uh, and that is, uh, we won't go through the verses because I think this is probably an easier way to explain it. And that will be things like cattle, deer, goats, sheep, seafood, with both fins and scales, um, such as bluegill, grouper, cod, certain birds, including chickens, doves, ducks, even some insects such as grasshopper and locusts. We see that today. Uh, if you ever see that um, terrible program, uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, uh, they eat those horrible insects. Some of those are okay to eat, actually, uh, according to, to God here. Uh, um, but unclean animals are land animals that have, do not chew the cud, or do not have a split hoof, and that would be pigs, dogs, cats, horses, donkeys, and rats, uh, seafood lacking um, either fins or scales, shellfish, lobster, oysters, catfish, some birds, such as owls, hawks, vultures, other animals such as reptiles and amphibians. The list is, is crazy, isn't it? Having to make sure you're not eating the wrong thing, the unclean thing. Uh, Probably good to note there's probably bats in here in the unclean list as well. Uh, just uh, if you know why that's relevant uh, in this day and age. Um, and a very, very good, very good, extremely good Bible teacher who I know 
uh, who's absolutely knows the Greek, knows everything about this, uh, tells, he's actually got it on his website, and he tells, he says about why, that, why actually the, the, the Bible is a very useful way of telling us what not to eat and touch. Strange that included bats as well. Uh, and he explains why bats are included. And we know if that's where coronavirus came from, uh, why we shouldn't eat bats. Uh, who knew that God knew before time that we'd do silly things like eating bats? Um, but what is interesting about these lists today is that in a worldly sense, um, nutritionists have apparently noted that the listings of clean and unclean foods in the Old Testament actually provide a guideline for healthy diet. Isn't that amazing? God knows what's good for us. Wow, all-knowing God knows what's good for us, the creator of us. He knows what's good for us. That seems, that's just crazy. But in any case, in any case, many of God's regulations were actually to remind his people, Israel, that they were set apart to worship the one true God. It's always a bigger purpose to why God has done anything, Old or New Testament. It's always a bigger reason why God does anything. Jesus backed up this principle, actually, when he responded to the Pharisees about the disciples eating food with defiled hands. The Pharisees would go for a ceremonial washing before they ate. Um, but Jesus accused them of doing that all for show. Uh, and we see that in Mark 7. Verses 6 to 7, it says, He replied, As I was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. It goes on, verses 14 to 19, uh, and this is where I'm going to explain why there's a missing verse. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? Imagine Jesus saying that to you. Are you so dull? But he's doing it in grace, in love, perfect, not angry. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them for it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body in saying this jesus declared all foods clean so this was before we're in this moment here in acts that jesus already declared all foods clean there is a missing verse you will notice here is verse 16 and the reason for that is because they say that what was said there um and it's 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 kind of almost it is irrelevant in what in a reason in not including it in in these other translations only in the king james version um but it said that this particular line came afterwards came much longer further after the time this was actually written we had that i think a few weeks ago we had another set of verses where there was a missing verse and it's only because in in parts of scripture they've inserted as it were into these manuscripts things after the event or after they were written as it were so it's missing on purpose because it, it, it's not written at the time. Practical explanation. There's a couple of occasions that happens in the Bible. Perfectly fine. Uh, it, ju- it just says, um, let him who have ears listen or hear. That, that's, that's all it says. But it's not written at the time that, that, Luke, uh, that, sorry, that Mark actually wrote it. But getting back to this, Jesus had already declared all foods clean. And there is somewhat of a stubbornness in Peter. We know Peter can be stubborn. 
Peter is, a, is absolutely for Jesus. He is so on fire for him. But in his on fireness, he can be a little bit stubborn. But I think the reason why it had to happen now, why Peter had to accept it, is because Peter's about to be sent out proper to preach to the Gentiles. He's going to share the gospel with everyone else of what he, he would see as unclean. So God has to teach him if, that if the one true God says that they're clean and made them clean, then Peter's only response is to accept it. God's making of what he has made clean is not a change by God. It's not an alteration. He's not suddenly going, oh, I've got an idea. I'm going to get rid of the lists. Always in God's plan, this was always going to happen. Why was that always going to happen? Because of Jesus. We need to be aware that God, when, when we think God is doing something, it, it's not something different. He's not suddenly changed his mind about something. He's doing something that follows absolute and sticks with who he is. He is consistent all the time. What God is doing is showing that now the whole world has the opportunity to be part of God's family. That because Christ was the only spotless, blameless Lamb of God and paid for all sins on the cross, that all who now trusted and believe in Jesus would now become set apart. We would be, as it were, cleansed, all of us who believe in Jesus. God was not only telling Peter that the Jewish dietary laws have been done away with since Christ has come, but he was stating symbolically a far greater truth. Gentiles are no longer unclean. The message of Jesus is for all Gentiles of all Gentile nations. When a Gentile believes in Jesus, his or hers uncleanliness passes away and they're accepted by Jesus. That's us. To be accepted by Jesus, we're cleansed. Not because of what we do. There's a man called Ray Steadman, uh, and there's a, there's a good, good quote here from him. He's a pastor. He was a pastor in America a while ago. Um, and he says, the world is not impressed by the fact that we Christians will not do certain things. We say, I don't dance, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go out with girls that do. And we expect the world to be impressed. Well, they're not impressed at all. There are many of, of them who will, not, who will not do certain things for reasons other than religion. There is no merit in that. No, if all we can say is that we don't do certain things, then we have nothing at all to interest a non-Christian. It's that saying that we go back to, uh, we, we talk too much about what we don't do instead of what we do do. But what God has done to help Peter get through this perceived change is to put him up in Simon the Tanner's house. We didn't talk about Simon the Tanner last time. It's not because we're ashamed of him. Uh, it's because he, we, we, he's mentioned here again, and so this is um, a good time to talk about him. Simon Atani was, um, he was in an unclean trade. Uh, he made leather items. Um, killing and handling of dead animals was absolutely necessary in doing that. Um, and Atana at the time was a social outcast according to Jewish law. The three men sent by Cornelius would uh, certainly not have a hard time finding 
the tanner's home. It, it would stand out. It would be obvious that this was a tanner's house. It says that they would have probably followed their noses. That's the kind of smell and stench they would have found this house. It was a smelly job. And yet, isn't it strange, Peter was staying with him. And he gets this vision and command from God telling him, nothing is, is now off limits. In terms of people who can come to me, nothing is off limits. And he's doing this on the roof of a man who is unacceptable by Jews. And God's just, just, just in there, just, he's not, Peter's not quite seeing it. You're with a man that is unacceptable to your tradition. Peter, as a good religious Jew, would have nothing to do with a tanner normally. But after Peter's conversion and the tanner's conversion, Peter had to set aside his Jewish traditions, prejudices, and stay with the tanner as a brother in Christ. He would have had to stay with him. And I think it's one of those uh, things that can test out our metal. I keep forgetting to go back to the camera. Um, it can test our metal when it comes to mixing with others, accepting others who are not accepted by society. It's probably easier for us to accept one person at a time who doesn't quite match our own standard expectations, level of etiquette. And that could be either side of the line. Those who, who are seemingly um, downtrodden by society uh, would probably look down on people who have a high view of themselves. Similarly, people with a high view of themselves might look down on people who are downtrodden in society. But it's probably easier for one person at a time. It's probably easier for us to adjust and take time. But for Peter, he's going to share the gospel with even more people that he traditionally would not be mixing with. Scott says, it's okay that you would this, and it's great. You're doing, you're doing well. But you're going to meet so many people just like Simon the Tanner. You need to be ready for this amazing coming to Christ of all these people. And you're going to need to drop whatever this you have in your head about all these people, because all these people welcome into the kingdom of Jesus, everybody. Those who profess Jesus Christ. The very vision and the visit from the men sent by Cornelius be one of the last strongholds that would ready Peter for an amazing ministry that would bring the gospel to many Gentiles. Peter was getting this message from his head to his heart. He invited the three Gentile soldiers into his home, or sorry, into the home of Simon and Tanner, and they lodged there for the night. One, three, six, ten, twenty. It's getting him ready. God slowly, come on. Everyone is welcome into the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is going to be what you see as this very particular moment in time, where you see three or four people and you're just kind of like, okay, I'm going to accept them, I'm going to push them. That's nothing compared to what's about to happen. Peter was beginning to understand grace and the wider mission of the gospel to truly offer to all the opportunity to be saved. God is saving unclean Gentiles through Jesus. He can take unclean, low-down sinners and make them clean. What God has cleansed, no man must call unholy. I found this story 
which I just find uh, amazing. Um, I think there's a, a guy called Harry Ironside. He's a pastor of some time ago. And he told the story of his father's uh, death. He says, as his father was dying, um, this passage in Acts 10 was running through his father's mind. And he kept repeating, a great sheep, wild beasts. And he kept, kept going over this, this vision again and again. And he couldn't seem to get the next word out. He couldn't seem to just understand what, what is it? What's it about? He went back over and started over and just kept coming back to the same place. Couldn't, just couldn't get it. It says here, it says, finally a friend bent over and whispered. It says, John, it says creeping things. Oh, yes, he said. That is how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in, saved by grace. Nothing impressive about Harry Ironside. But God is impressive. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those things. Those creeping things, the unclean things, that's me. But because of God's grace, because of Jesus Christ, because I'm now welcomed... I'm saved by grace. God is saving creeping things. No matter how low, no matter how vile, no matter how utterly useless, corrupt, or unclean we uh, might think we are, God will save everyone who who rest their trust in Jesus Christ, who admits that they are corrupt, useless, unclean, and not worthy. We are made worthy by the righteousness of Christ. It's for those that will rest their souls on Jesus Christ and receive him as a personal saviour. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And that is the amazing beginning of this, what is a specific moment. What seems like, well, what's going to happen? Why has God given me the vision? When we see Peter, he's still figuring it out when they knock on the door. He knows there's something more to this. So I'm just going to sum up with the verse, the first verse we started with this morning. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He, he possesses us, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is all on God, and he has done it. Through Jesus Christ, it has been done. It is finished. Next week, we're going to look at, in more detail, this moment they come together. And we're going to see the salvation that happens, the conviction salvation of Cornelius. We're going to see how God works in Peter. God works in Cornelius. It's a great moment, great witness. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll have our worship together Lord we want to thank you that you have saved the wretched 
that nothing about us was, was ever pleasing to you in our state of sin, in our state of awfulness, and whatever you want to call it, nothing was going to be worthy of salvation. Nothing that we did or do is worthy of earning salvation in Jesus. Nothing. We're not worthy of God's grace. But God has made it so. He has made it so grace works so that we can come to Jesus, trust in him and receive salvation. Lord, I do pray that we will find, we will learn how to talk about the not nice subject of sin, the not nice subject of our sinful nature. Lord, I pray that we don't use it as a way to belittle, tread on, put down people who have not yet seen, heard, come to you. Rather, Lord, may it glorify evermore Jesus who has come to forgive the sin of our doing, of what we have done. Lord, may we not become pious, condescending, and sharing the gospel with those who are yet to know you. Lord, we just want to thank you for these pieces in Scripture, as it were, that show us that you're so patient and gracious. Not just common grace, which allows us just to, to live and make choices about whether we believe in God or not, but actually patient with those that come to you and say, I, I, I believe in Jesus and trust in you. And you're patient with us when we say, really, God? Really? You want me to do that? You want me to talk to this person? You want me to do that? You want me to do this? Oh, Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you that you know that our, our, our minds are always being drawn or attempted to be drawn into this world, into the to the spiritual battle. So Lord, we pray that you will just give us strength in these times, Lord, just to, when we hear from you, it's certainly with things that we just don't understand, Lord. Lord, give us the discernment to sit back and just hear you. Let it, let it kind of rush over us. Let it, let it wash over us first before we respond. Let's pray on it because, Lord, you've given us that too, to pray to ask questions, to explore, to whatever you want to call it, Lord, we thank you that you've given us that as an opportunity to speak with you. Lord, we just want to pray now as we come to worship you that you are the only reason why any of this matters, why anything we do means anything. Nothing of our charitable giving, the good things and the good works that we do would earn us a place in heaven. But your son, who died on a cross, who rose again, and for those that trust and believe in him, 
we're assured to be with you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus because he is the only means by which we can access the Father and be in heaven with you when we leave this place. We thank you, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you speak to our hearts as we worship in your precious holy name. We worship Jesus. We understand who you are. And we just want to give thanks and praise for your word. We thank you for all these things. Amen.